Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the New American Media Podcast. We have a special episode here today. I want to introduce my guest co-host for today's pod, Greg Chang. Hey, How's Greg. it going? Great to be back. Yes. The viewers loved you. We got a lot of great response. So I figured, why not have you back again? Thank you for coming on. Greatly appreciated. And um want to talk today about immigration, the importance of immigration in this country. I was just in New York City this over Labor Day weekend. And we went and visited the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island. I got to see the first immigration museum there. And it showed the history of immigration to North America from 1600 to the present day. Um, it was really insightful, amazing. And I know we haven't had any changes in really an immigration law in the past 40 years. So I wanted to have somebody on who's a friend of my ours, both of ours, went to school with us at the University of North Carolina. Go Heels, 3-0. and um, His name is Sang Shin. He is a power attorney, best lawyers in Houston, um, the accolades go on and on. One of the top immigration attorneys in the country, partner at his law firm there in Houston, Jackson Walker. Um, Shang, welcome to the New American Media Podcast. Yo, what's going on? Good to be on. Thanks for calling me a power attorney, by the way. I've never been described as that, so appreciate it. No, no, it's great. I think you've done some amazing things. Um, you see all types of immigration cases all the time. What kind of pushed you to become an immigration lawyer? I know you went to law school. When was it that kind of light bulb went off in your head and you said, this is what I want to do and why did you want to do it? Yeah, I mean, great question. Um, believe it or not, I think um, I, I fell into law, right? Uh, but you and Greg, you guys have known me for quite some time. I'm somebody that's always been passionate about things that that really impact me personally. So I think I, you know, uh, my parents were immigrants, right? I mean, let's start there. I mean, that's where that's where we always start, right? My parents were immigrants, and they um, had a really difficult time navigating a very bureaucratic American system, right? Um, they, they ran into multiple lawyers that didn't have their best interest, um, spent lots of money. Um, I remember coming home and like parents would sometimes fight and, and you find out what they're fighting about. It's about my dad picking the wrong lawyer again. Um, so like stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you, you grow up with that. And I just remember thinking, you know, I gotta be somebody that is gonna help people like my parents. Um, and even the clients that I see today, um, though their backgrounds are not exactly my parents, 
it's kind of the same sentiment, right? Like uh, when you, whenever you're coming to navigate a new country, just in general, and, and one is especially as the United States, you have to, to, to kind of know the ins and outs. You have to be able to, 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 to have the right people on your side. Right. So I think from a very early age, I knew that I was going to do something to help people like my parents. Um, and it just so happened to be uh, in an area like immigration. It just, I just kind of fell into that area, but it's very personal to me. No, that's amazing. Go ahead. Have you ever told your parents that that's the reason why I got into it? Do they know about that? Um, I think they know a little bit, but um, probably not for that specific reason. They just probably thought that I wanted to, you know, always be a lawyer. But I think that's what my mom probably tells herself. Um, but yeah, no, I just lawyer or a doctor. No. Yeah. Yeah, it was either be a doctor or a lawyer, right? I mean, the true the true Asian fashion of of what type of profession you should hold, right? That's cool. I mean, to be able to say that you're doing well for yourself, but also kind of you know making a dent in the world in a positive way, I, I think that's that's like the American dream. That's probably what your parents were hoping for. When yeah, I mean, that's amazing. It's it's pretty cool because I mean. Immigration, as you guys know, that the, the area of law spans across the board. It, it you help people like my parents who who got a visa through a family based way. I help a lot of uh, companies and a lot of, of of investors that are coming into the United States. A little bit of a, a sub niche of, of immigration law, uh, but at the root of it, it's what is it? It's people trying to come to the U.S. to have a better life for themselves. Uh, uh, things that our parents did for us in order for us to be here. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the area of law that I'm in for sure. What um, took you from here in North Carolina to all the way to Houston to practice immigration law? H-Town. Yeah, man. I mean, so you guys know, I love North Carolina. I, um, I, you know, my parents immigrated from Korea um, I was in D.C. for a little bit, but then my, my entire life was in North Carolina. I mean, uh, my heart is still there, but I decided to move 10 years ago um, because I just saw a lot more opportunity in um, in Texas, oddly enough. Um, and, and Houston, uh, where I practice now, is, you know, per capita, the most diverse city in the world, actually. Oh, wow. um, and so there, there's a lot of opportunity here. There were... Um, I think that it's just easier to do business here where people really give you a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, so, so that's why I made the move. Um, and it's just a huge immigration hub, right? Um, a lot of companies and individuals entering the the market in Houston is kind of one of their first places that they're looking at. Uh, I mean, Texas in general, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but um, Texas is a, you know, huge kind of area where people are coming from internationally. Um, Outside of, you know, where Greg's at in California, I've been trying to get Greg to come over here because, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of people from California coming to Texas right now. It's called like the, the big the great Texas. Um, so he should he should come too. But uh, no, I mean, it, it, it's just a great place, a great place to do business. Um, but at the same time, uh, just just be in front of a lot of international people. So tell us, Shang, um, kind of a little bit of some stories, maybe anecdotes of the types of visas you work on. And my big question is, I don't know if you know this or not, but like, what is the number 
of legal immigrants that come to the United States every year. And um, what per, what are the percentages maybe of some of those visas and um, how they help the economy? Yeah, well, I won't get into the numbers. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know there was a man, I was like, man, percentages. Yeah, I know about the pop quiz. But no, I mean, the root of your question, though, is, you know, how many people are coming into the United States on a given day? I mean, you know, practitioners like myself, we are seeing cases like droves of cases each day, new consults of people trying to get into the United States or finding the proper visas to do that. Um, you know, the, the, the headlines, the news headlines, they're always dominated, um, you know, politically by who's coming across the border, right? Who's um, coming from Mexico, who's doing all of this. Uh, but, the, but the business reality, the practical reality is that a majority of people are doing things the right way, right? They're, they're coming not just from Mexico, they're coming from Asia, they're coming from Europe, um, they're coming from Africa to, to do business and to have a life here. Right. And so my job is to help them find the, the best way to do that. Um, and believe it or not, it's equally hard for any of those places in terms of the types of processes that you have to file. Um, to your question, I get to see this on the fort, which is really exciting. What does it do for the U.S. economy? Um, I represent multinational companies that from from energy to tech to um, life sciences, uh, to semiconductor manufacturers. The, these individuals, what are they doing? They're creating jobs, right? Um, for national companies that are abroad that are setting up in the United States, they're doing that to create U.S. jobs, to grow the U.S. economy. Um, you know, here's just some anecdotes. You guys have heard, obviously, of Tesla's relocation from California to Austin, yeah. um, Austin, Texas. You've heard of of some of these Korean um, automobile manufacturers going into Alabama, Tennessee. Um, the Samsung Semiconductor is coming into Texas as well. They are actually setting up in rural America. Uh, they're not in city center Austin or city center Houston. They're going to rural America setting up shop to do what? To create U.S. jobs, to build that economy around there, to grow uh, and, and, and to make things a little bit more urban. Um, that story gets lost, I think, in, in the media. And so, you know, um, I'm really excited because I get to see that. I get to see companies and individuals that have these ideas and come in and just just grow the U.S. economy. Um, you know, I, I was actually just speaking to one of my clients the other day who um, is uh, the, the executive of a, uh, a new IT software out in out in um, California. Um, oh. He started, he started off as an immigrant um, with his parents, went to school, um, became a lawyer, stopped becoming a lawyer, which, um, which maybe I'll do one day, and, and found, <laughs> found his own company. And, you know, he's employing like, you know, 10,000 employees out in the valley, right? So, yeah, um, yeah just I think, I think I see that probably a lot more in my line of work than, than most people would. It's like it's super refreshing to hear someone who actually sees – with the reality of immigration and how the engine of the economy and growth or one of the big pieces of that engine versus like the national narrative that's so politicized and polarized. And you just hear about, you know, people busing from tech, you know, Governor Abbott busing people and 
that's yeah. what's dominating. But the reality, it's so refreshing to hear that's like actually making a positive impact. And most people are, are doing the right way. Because if you believe the news, it's just like doom and gloom. And it's like, you know, a crazy situation. So it's just yeah, really it's great. So, well, it's so polarizing, right? I mean, you see you see the, the news cycle dominated by, oh, you know, we need to have protections for migrant workers. We need to do this. And then the other side saying, no, we need to stop illegal immigrants from coming in. They're criminals. But, um, you know, I'll tell you this, the, the topic of immigration, and I know this from practicing now, is that it's it's a very apolitical topic. It It's something that I think both sides of any political spectrum agree on in terms of it's needed for economic growth. Uh, uh, you know, we deal with senators offices or house, uh, you know, representative offices where I don't know if you guys know this, but if if we needed to get a visa fast for someone, uh, one way that you can do that is by oh, reaching out, yeah, reaching, reaching out to, to a congressman and saying, hey, we got this person that's trying to come in. They're being blocked or things are taking too long. Can you help out? Um, they're, they're the CEO of a company that's going to create X amount of jobs and bring this much money into the area. Um, and, you know, kind of slide in there, you know, these are future U S workers that, that vote, you know, you, you throw stuff in there like that and guess what Republican or Democrat, they're jumping on it. Right. So it just kind of shows you that, that it is an apolitical topic. It's, it's, it's really about growth and economy. And that's, what's so amazing that it has become politicized, even though, like you said, it is an apolitical topic. Um, in terms of like some special cases, like you were saying, we had a case here where there was a Indian tech CEO for a local software company in the triangle and he, his daughter had turned 18 and I don't, I, I know you know this, but our listeners probably don't that if you're born in another country and you come here as a one-year-old, even legally, um, and your parents are, let's say, on a work visa, but they don't become citizens until, uh, before you're 18 years old. At 18 years old, you become an illegal immigrant. So that's a huge loophole in the system for children of legal immigrants who do not have legal status once they're 18. That's just one of the stories, and I'm sure you can share a little bit more about that and kind of what you've seen. We actually had to do what you said and call a senator and a House of Representatives member and get them expedited uh, green cards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think circumstances for a lot of people, they just um, – it's just like in anything, the law is unfair depending upon the circumstances, right? Um, the laws are, are, are never perfect in my opinion. Um, like, uh, as you said earlier, it's true since 1986, immigration laws haven't changed. So anything that we see movement in immigration these days is dictated by policy. It's dictated by, uh, whoever's in office as the president, right? So, that's why you saw so many like difficult times during, for example, the Trump administration. Um, you saw it being a little more lenient during the Obama administration. Um, and now in the Biden administration, we're still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Right. So it's like, you know, the law hasn't changed. And, and, and as Americans, we know that 
the law governs everything, right? Congress has to make the laws. They have to do all that stuff. And if they don't make the laws, our presidents, they're stuck with actually instituting policy through executive order to change those things. So depending upon factual circumstances, it's going to be always unfair to somebody. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, your example, that, that, that's a great example. That's one where um, it would have been nice for that family to have someone to guide them, to tell them, Hey, if, if your, your, your daughter or your child is not going to be um, a permanent resident or you're looking towards citizenship for that individual by a certain age, or you're not doing that yourself, uh, they can be SOL. Right. So um, yeah, you just have to, um, hopefully, you know, people are, are savvy enough to, to find some help at some point. And that's the thing. This person had enough wealth and money to be able to hire an attorney to take care of that. Whereas a lot of people in that circumstance don't. And then they could go through their whole life being growing up in the United States and end up at 18, 19 years old, not being able to go to college. Right. This was similar to the situation with the DACA children, but this is actually with legal immigrants. So that's what was surprising. The DACA thing, just quickly, if you guys aren't aware, the DACA, the DACA thing, I think, is more sad. You know, DACA, that's where you have a, a group of people, a, a, actually a large amount of individuals. They were kids when they came into the United States. Their parents brought them. You know, uh, we have no choice as children where we're going to be. We have to, you know, we're at the mercy of our parents. And so we follow them wherever they go. Um, and then by the time they reach 18, they realize and I've been going to school. I've been doing everything right. But now when I'm trying to get a job or go to school, they're saying that I'm not a, a, a recognized individual of this country that I've grown up, grown up in. Right. And so there have been attempts to make a law for individuals in that area to, to protect them. But again, Congress has not passed laws. So the Obama administration pretty much said we're going to protect these individuals and create a pathway for them to get work authorization, not even citizenship or lawful permanent residence, but work authorization, where you can at least work. Um, and then the Trump administration tried to take it away. And then and then recently they just passed a, passed a new policy to allow for that. I think a law actually. Um, but it's sad because they're still kind of in this limbo status. Um, and, and, you know, we see a lot of cases where people in DACA, they're like, hey, how can I get a more substantial way of staying here. And the answer right now is nothing. We can't really do anything. You just have to extend your work authorization until, um, until, until Congress completely acts and protects you. So it's like, it's like things like that, that really break your heart, right? When you can't really do anything about it. It's just crazy, you know, because literally pretty much everyone here is an immigrant or a relative that was an immigrant. I mean, that's the, that's the American story. And it's, it's really interesting how quickly, your perspective can change with one or two generations. But if we all go back in our family history or family tree, it all starts in another country. For sure. Know? And um, it's also really interesting to hear about earlier, you talked about how there is just so much demand for people to get into the U.S. And I think we as Americans can take for granted what we have sometimes. Yeah. But immigration is like a good way to hold up a mirror to the country and kind of say like, hey, how, what's our state? fact is like there's people lining up throughout the world trying to trying to get in here so we're we're lucky man we are so lucky we are americans are lucky man we i tell people this all the time like that or take for granted like you say what's going on right um 
But at the end of the day, um, countries, individuals, companies, they're lining up to do business and live in the United States. We, we still are a country um, that's desirable, right? Um, people want to be here. And so, you know, if we're part of the club already, for example, if we're U.S. citizens already, um, many times we do take that for granted. We don't understand the freedoms and the, the amount of privilege we actually have. No, that's true. I mean, look at countries where there is very little to no immigration. Japan is losing 50% of its population. China will lose 50% of its population by the turn of the century, by 2100. Um, they were talking about that in Korea, in South Korea, because the birth rates cannot replace the population. Even yeah. in the United States, our birth rates are below two. And I think we're at like one six, one seven, something like that. And so immigration is the only reason that the U.S. population continues to grow. And yeah, one of fair. the things that we do that I think is great is the best and brightest come to the United States because of our rule of law, our capitalism, and our society, our freedoms that we have. And I think we should actually, my philosophy personally is we should increase immigration to bring the smartest, the brightest, as quickly as we can to the United States to innovate and create jobs. I don't know the exact stat, maybe you do, but it's like every immigrant that comes to this country at least 50 to 60% of them become entrepreneurs. Yeah. Or do I mean, a pop quiz, Shane. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're all about stats and all that stuff. You know, you brought me on because I see the cases, right? So I can't speak to the stats, but. Tell um, us, tell us some of the anecdotal cases, something, one of the craziest cases that you've seen maybe. Wow. You know, I just, <laughs> this is, this is really weird. I just did. Um, a, there's a visa called an O-1, right? Um, that O-1 is is what they sometimes call the rock star visa, right? Essentially, it just means that if you have extraordinary ability, quote unquote, in, in, in a particular area, um, that you could get this O-1 visa if you meet certain criteria, right? And um, so obviously, I get all sorts of people saying that they're rock stars, that they, they, they have extraordinary ability. And, and it's my job to kind of sift that out. And I'm like, a lot of these consults, you guys will laugh because you guys know my personality. I'd be like, hey, man, you know what? I think you are extraordinary. I think you're great. And I personally believe that you're a rock star. But we got to get the government <laughs> to believe that you're a rock star. So you got you to gotta give me some more information. Um, you know, I've had some rock star visas. I call them rock. I was just for, for simplicity, call it rock star visas. You know, I, I've helped... Um, you know, people that are on Broadway, right? People that are, that receive Tony Awards or have been nominated for Oscar Awards that, that are in film and production and, and uh, music. And um, oh. yeah, so, so help, help them with that. Those are relatively straightforward and easy. I've helped athletes, right? For certain, um, you know, sports teams get um, athlete visas on, under that O-1. Um, but, you know, that O-1 can also be used creatively, um, I got an O one for a, a guy that was like a tantric music healer, um, well known 
in India, what very well known in India. Um, you may not know, you may not know him, Garang, but I mean, like well known in India, and I had to make that argument. And you know, that one was a little bit more difficult, right? Because how do you say you're a rock star in tantric healing, right? Or music healing. So um I have cases like that. Yeah, it's really another, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. There's there's other other ones called like a national interest waiver where you have to make the argument that an individual is doing something that's going to bring um, that is in the U.S. interest, like improving the economy or making medicine better. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of <laughs> I'm just laughing because we're like we're like born into it as an American citizen. I know, man. People and, have to fight. You know, like less than half the people in the U.S. vote. And then you got these people who are like going through these crazy contortions, hiring lawyers. They're like, bro, the world leader in tantric music healing. And they yeah, they and, and they fight. You know what? And this is what I what I admire um, and what I love about the, this area of law is you meet people that are, you know, they got they got they got balls, man. They got fortitude. They they want to they want to do everything they can. To, to be in the United States. They want to be a new American eventually. You know what I mean? Like um, you don't come across people like that when, when we're, we're in our circles or, you know, doing all that, your friends, you don't, you don't see that. And so um, I'm with them. I, I fight them, you know, I fight with them and I'll say, Hey, I don't know if the government's going to believe in this, um, this, this tantric music healing, but if we can, <laughs> if we can, if we can make it work, we will. Um, and I'm happy to report that 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 case was approved. Right. So oh, it just wow, shows you. Awesome. Yeah. But I mean, but it's a lot of it's a lot of 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 back and forth, a lot of fighting persistence. And I think that, um, you know, working with with individuals with that type of background, it's um, you know, it's, it's it keeps you going. It keeps you engaged in what you're doing. Did, did you experience the tantric music healing as part of your legal research? No, nah, man. No, nah, I was uh, <laughs> I stayed away from it. I stayed away from it. Um got to keep things professional always right so um stay away from it that is hilarious <laughs> oh i've done some for chefs as well some you know chefs that are coming into the united states to open their own restaurants and things like that so that's another type of thing so tell, tell us a little bit about the investment visa and how those are used for pooled capital I actually have friends of mine who have built large commercial real estate projects yeah. in downtown Houston, in uh, Buckhead, Atlanta. And um, we are actually looking possibly to use that visa. I know what it's called, EB-5 visa. Yeah. But yeah. to use it in our development projects. Yeah. I mean, just in general, the, the idea was it came from the Obama administration, right, where um, it was pretty much the job creation visa where we, America wanted to open its doors to foreign investors um, and say that that we'll take your money. Right. And we'll use it for good. We'll create U.S. jobs. And as part of that, in exchange for that, the people that are investing, um, they'd be able to to get a green card. Right. Um, and, and, and let's think about this. Why, why would that be a fair trade in any sense of the imagination? Um, again, this goes to, to Greg, your point earlier. Um, if you're in the United States, you really don't know the, the benefits that you have. But um, the EB-5 is used was used a lot in China. Um, I know there's a lot in Vietnam now, um, India. There was in South Korea. Number one or one of the main reasons is because these investors want to ensure that their children have access to good education. 
right? Um, and, and them getting the green cards or their children getting green cards allows them to, to have that, right? So, so our practice, um, my law partner, he, he kind of runs our EB-5 section. Um, but, but, you know, there are so many foreign investors that look to invest their money into these types of real estate projects, pulled investments to, 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 to not only be proud and, and get some sort of return on investment, right? But also for their families to be able to immigrate to the United States and have access to, to, to education. Their children can have access and flexibility to work here if they want. I mean, that's, that's a big deal if you think about it. I mean, these are, these are also future potential entrepreneurs that are able to, to grow the, the economy even more. Well, I'm going to try to get a free consultation here. You got to put me in touch with your partner on some yeah, man. estate development projects. Of course. Of course. You, if, I'll get you a free consult, but then you're going to have to pay afterwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we no, should just have I mean, him on the podcast and you get a, you get a 60 minute free. Consult. I should have, I should have asked him to come on and yeah, a really cool dude as well. Um, but yeah, he, he runs our EB five section. He, and he goes back and forth to um to vietnam to india he was traveling a lot pre-covid um because there's so much interest that they have these conferences there like, like how do we get to the united states um and then you have people on that side they're, they're serving as agents well where, where they will ask people to come to them and they serve as that intermediary to connect them with 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 you know individuals like our at our firm who can help them do it legally oh, last yeah, question well, on this thing for a business idea <laughs> <laughs> last question on the eb5 i heard that they raised the limit from half a million to a million is that it's, true it's 800 800 so okay, half a million to 800 um so yeah they did raise the limit and um guess what people are still investing right so wow. um really really interesting are there no, any countries awesome. that uh, were, are surprising to you where you see a lot of that coming from? You said Vietnam, China. Vietnam was, Vietnam was surprising, right? Um, a lot of people don't know this, but there's a lot of money in Vietnam, a lot. Um, yeah. yeah, Thailand is another area where you're starting to see a little bit more. Um, India, um, for sure. Uh, Pakistan, I think we've received some inquiries in Pakistan. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is, is not just in the United States, FYI, it's, it's everywhere. Um, so, you know, some of these countries where, where we as Americans sometimes believe they're, 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 you know, there's no money in those countries. There's so much money. Right. So yeah, Vietnam was very surprising to me. Uh, but big, big, a lot of money there. A lot no, of money there. I mean, we know here in the triangle because the largest Vietnamese auto manufacturer of yep. Just announced they're building literally 20 minutes down the road from me here in Chatham County. It's yeah. Be the first electric vehicle plant in North Carolina by a Vietnamese car manufacturer, VinFast. Yeah, I actually I actually saw that car in D.C. in July. Um, oh, no way. Yeah, I went to this conference and they had um, it, it's a conference called Select USA. And this is this is, uh, again, going back to the whole apolitical thing. The government, the U.S. Department of Commerce has a yearly event where they invite all these international companies to, quote unquote, select the USA, meaning come invest here. Right. VinFast was there and they were showing off their cars and doing all this stuff. So that's when I first learned about it, too. I was like, dang, I didn't know. I didn't know Vietnam was doing this. And yeah. so um, is it VinFast? Cool. V-I-N-H. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Is the entrepreneur's name Vin? No, no, it's V I N F A S T. Oh, not, not a bad. Not, not PH. Got it. Yeah, not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Greg. Oh, you're gonna, you, you guys are going to lose all no, this. There's, there's another layer of, of comedic commentary. I'm, I'm it's, yeah. it's, definitely withholding. If you guys don't know, the funny thing is both of them are married to Vietnamese women. This is we are. Yeah, yeah, we are. We are. We're, in, we're in too deep. We're in too deep. <laughs> I mean, that's why Greg can make that joke and I can laugh. But um, no, yeah. Regular Vin Fast. I think they Americanized it, Greg. Oh, got it. Yeah, we can make the joke, but I still hope our wives don't see it. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Get slapped <laughs> upside the head. <laughs> so tell us this, Shang. This is a couple of the questions I always ask all the interviewers on, all the guests on, I mean. Um, what kind of, as a child, and you've said a little bit about this, pushed you towards becoming the person you are today, choosing that route. And, um, what would you say to all of the young kids watching this podcast and, um, figuring out what they want to do either as entrepreneurs, attorneys, any any kind of uh, job where they're out helping others and other new Americans as well. Man, I mean, that's a layered question, right? I mean, it's it's a lot. I think personally, I can just tell my personal story. I, I, I alluded to it earlier, but it's not just the immigrant piece, right? Um, I came I came here at a young age, so I grew up pretty much American, even though I was you know Korean by background, but. Um, Grant, you probably remember this if you grew up in North Carolina. You, you grew up in Fayetteville, right? Charlotte, then Fayetteville. Fa Charlotte, then Fayetteville. So um, when we were growing up, there weren't there weren't many people that looked like us, right? Um, Not at all. Yeah. And so so I think a lot of that perspective over time really fueled us, right? You guys are very supportive of me back in college when I was with, you know, very ambitious about trying to be the first Asian student body president. Um, a lot of that was based upon the fact that 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 we wanted we wanted to accomplish something. Right. Um, and I think that's always kind of be a, a, a kind of a personal ambition is to 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 elevate the platform of of, of Asian Americans. Right. So I and, and I try to do that now, um, you know, in small ways. I'm, I'm not anywhere near the top of any food chain. Right. Even at my firm. But what little platform I have, I try to, to build off that. So to your point, I would love, I don't want, I don't want more Asian American attorneys. Um, I don't want more Asian American doctors per se. Um, I would love to see more Asian American and more diverse just in general um, entrepreneurs because, um, you know, the higher you go, the more you can control, the more platform you have um, to, to, to do things. I mean, I look at Greg. Greg has that, right? You have that now and what you're doing and you're utilizing all those talents to, 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 to really provide platform for, for um, not just Asian Americans, but diverse individuals, new Americans, I mean, immigrants. So <clears throat> that's what I want to see. Like, you know, use that passion, use your experience, um, any unfairness that you perceive or, or receive and just turn it into platform, man, and, and make it better. Don't, and don't get there and not reach down, um, you know, do something with it.
That's man. true. Always mentor the next generation. For sure. For sure. No, that's great. Thank you for being on the podcast, Shang. Any last thoughts, Craig? It's funny that we're talking about mentoring and being role models because I think about the the uh, how we got to know each other back in the day and how far, <laughs> how far we how far we've come. But it's also a good reflection that you know we we probably had people help us mature sure. and get to the get to the next level and. We still need that moving on up. So it's a, it's yeah. We, I mean, I mean, to that point, you guys are friends. Uh, always have been. You know, we we have families. We have, you know we don't talk every day, but whenever we do get together, we we still sharpen each other, right? So, um, like, and and you know, Greg, please keep doing this. This is great what you're doing, getting out there. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. You want to tell the <clears throat> the world why um, we all know each other. And what you did to start at UNC in 2003? Uh, I, I guess we can briefly talk about it. So, you know, um, when we were at UNC back in 2003, there there, there weren't any Asian-American fraternities. Um, and one of our guys, Hans, our friends, um, he wanted to, he had this idea of, of getting one uh, to, to UNC. And so at first we're like, whatever, dude, it's just like a social hangout. But the more we started talking about it and I had, you know, each individual had their personal reasons for wanting to start it. But long story short, we started in 2003. I was part of uh, the first class with Hans and then Greg um, was part of the alpha class, our first class. And I was what we call his pledge master. Um, and then <laughs> and then Garang was part of the beta class. And I believe, Greg, you were his big bro, right? Or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And Ironic so because he's older, but. You know, <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, and it would, if you think about it, it was, it would, if you look back at it now, there's some silly aspects of, of, of being in a fraternity. But one thing that I think does stick is that we kind of all saw each other in, in some very vulnerable situations. Um, and still to be able to kind of come out of that and be, um, first be friends and then also to kind of, um, know how to support one, one another. I think that was a, that was a really cool experience. I think looking back on it was probably transcendent what you guys started what was continued because at that time it was the first asian american interest fraternity on the east coast and anywhere in the south there's so many now today but i thought it was really cool i learned a lot gained a lot and i hope i've been able to share a lot through that connection you know through pi alpha phi yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have to give a shout out to the letters, right? Yes. For anyone that's, yes. Yeah. P A five. It was it was a definitely a experience. <laughs> <laughs> you're my you're my favorite, Greg. Always were. Oh, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> Step on the brakes. Back, we're good. Back we're good. Yeah, let's let's cut. <laughs> is what he's saying. <laughs>